Welcome, welcome. We are in week number five of an eight-part series called One Big Story. This morning on my drive over, um, the coldest I saw was 26 degrees, which makes me very, very excited and happy because I am ready for winter. I love winter. I love it. Now, I have asked my daughter permission to show you this video. We're going to show you in just a moment. But in the video, you're going to see my daughter. And as you watch my daughter, you need to look. She looks so confident. And she's trying to pretend that she has it all together. There is no problem. I can do this. I can do it. She's going to be walking on ice. And, uh, well, let's just see how it turns out. Here comes my daughter. And she is all cool and collected. There she is. I've got this. No worries. <laughs> she struck a pose there for a moment. And let's see how she does. <laughs> Not so good. Not so well. She didn't do so well. That's my daughter, Tori. Now listen, when I am walking on snow or ice, I want to make sure I have a good foundation, a solid foundation. And that's not just true for the weather and me walking outside. That is true for my life. I want to make sure I'm walking on something solid. I want to make sure that I am grounded, that I am anchored to, to the relationships in my life, that I'm anchored to truths, that I'm anchored to habits so that when the storms come into my life, they won't knock me completely off guard. They, that, that way, when they blow in, I'm going to be okay. I want to know that there is a solid foundation and that I am on it. That's what I want. Now, we've been tracking along this story, this one big story that weaves its way through the Bible now, we're halfway through it in this series. Now, let's, let me review very quickly with you where we have been so far. Let me show you some highlights on a timeline. First, we talked about that God created the world and he created it good. And he did that to reveal how good he really is. And then in that garden, he placed a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and they didn't feel like that God had given them everything they needed to be really good. So they tried to add some stuff to it and they disobeyed God's commands. Now, as a result, when they did that, the world broke and it's still broken today. But God promised, he promised them there's more to the story. Just because it's broken doesn't mean that God has checked out. There's more to the story. And in fact, even in that story, way back in Genesis chapter 3, God hinted at, by saying there's more coming. And in fact, there's going to be some very surprising twists in this story. Secondly, unfortunately, things would get worse before they got better. And then... God suddenly began pursuing this man named Abraham, and he gave him a promise. He said, I am going to send the most amazing blessing to the entire world through your family, Abraham. And then he did that. Third, beginning with Moses and then continuing through the judges and the kings and the prophets, those all had to do with this nation Israel that God promised through Abraham. Through all of that, God demonstrated that he was going to work in his story 
according to his promises, not according to our performance and how well we do. He showed that he faithfully, God faithfully pursues unfaithful people. That's what he tells us in his story and shows us and proves that. And that his story is dependent upon what he did and what he will do, not dependent upon what we have done or what we will do. Now, while God gave his people a path for living that would be blessed, a path that would be blessed, they realized so often that they were incapable, these Israelites were incapable of always getting this right and living right. There was no way they began to find out, no way that they could keep up their end of the bargain. And so God had initiated a covenant with the people knowing that the people would fail, knowing that these people would wander away And at times, these people would even completely reject God. He knew that. He knew that. And he had them in his story anyway. And then through the prophets, he invited the people back, the Israelites. He invited them back to say, hey, come back into my story that I'm telling. Come back. And he pleaded with them to return to the story that he was writing. Here's the fourth thing. As we turn the uh, page in our Bible as we reach the end of Malachi in the Old Testament, then we find this mostly blank page. And there's two simple words on this mostly blank page, and the words are New Testament. New Testament. Now, I have with me right here a Bible from the 1800s. A Bible from the 1800s. And in this Bible, very old, this Bible itself was pulled out of a dumpster in Stuttgart, Old Bible. When you turn to the end of the Old Testament and this very old Bible, guess what you find? That blank page. And then you find these two words on that mostly blank page that say New Testament. From the end of Malachi to the beginning of the New Testament, the end of Malachi to the beginning of the New Testament, we find something that's not there. God was silent. From the end of Malachi to the beginning of the New Testament, God didn't, we don't have any record of him having communication with the Israelites, with his people. We don't have any record of it at all. So God was silent for 400 years. What must the Israelites who were living at that time have been thinking while God was silent during that season? Did they feel abandoned? I mean, did they feel confused? Maybe they felt hopeless or or maybe they felt forgotten. There were certainly those who had some hopeful anticipation that that the promise of God would be fulfilled. And, And some would cling to those words that the prophets declared there would be a Messiah coming. But it seems like They were desperate. The Israelites largely had fallen into a very dark place. And they needed someone to to guide them back on track. They needed someone to deliver them from this hopeless place that they were living in, this situation. They needed a savior. 
But decades of silence, decade after decade, it turned into centuries of silence. And yet all they could do was to simply keep waiting. And they waited in silence with no word from God. But that was no accident. I mean, it was part of God's story. It was part of what he was writing. He was silent until one day the voice of God pierced the darkness with the cry of a baby boy born in a stone trough that was used for feeding animals. God was now in the skin and the flesh and the bone of his creation and his created subjects. And you know what? He subjected himself as a baby to the care of his own creation. And he did all of that for the purpose of winning back those that he loved. Now this might be perhaps the greatest plot twist ever written in the tales of history. God himself came to earth. He came to our place, this earth, in order to take our place and make things right, to bring us back. God stepped across this great divide, this great barrier. He invaded the reality of our human history with one objective, his rescue of his children from our sin. Just listen how his birth was announced. This is amazing to this young girl who would become his mother in Luke chapter 1. The angel said, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Okay. Let's just zoom out for just a moment and let's look at this snapshot inside of this one big story. Sometimes we read these very familiar passages and we, we're so familiar, we read them very quickly and we miss exactly how crazy this really is. First of all, Mary got this news from an angel who just walked into her life. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not a normal thing for me. I mean, sometimes God interacts with his creation in some shocking ways like this. And an angel just walked in and told her this. He tells her that she's going to have a son. Now, that's somewhat problematic. And it's confusing because Mary had not done one single thing yet to make having a child physically possible. Sometimes God interacts with his story and his creation in miraculous ways, and that's what this was. The angel tells this virgin that her son would be the son of the Most High, And that he would have the throne and he would reign over Jacob's and Abraham's descendants forever. 
in a kingdom that would never end. Now, I can only imagine Mary just saying, what? I mean, I mean I, did Mary even understand all of that? I mean, first of all, she's talking to an angel. And secondly, she's, she's now, because of the information she's been told, she's got to figure out how she's going to tell her parents and her fiancé that she's pregnant. And by the way, parents and fiancé, God said, don't worry, God says it's okay. Now finally, in this, she's been given a description of the influence that her child, her kid, is going to have. And it's, it's got to be slightly, if not amazingly, unfathomable for this girl who is living and growing up in this small town called Nazareth that she and her child now are going to be involved in thrones, in kingdoms. This is amazing. Clearly, Jesus was ushering in a new way of life, a new normal. Now, Mary probably in this moment thought that she was standing on shifting, unbalanced sand But in reality, she could not have been more solidly planted in the goodness and in the provision of God. Now, whether you've been in church a lot or or not, you're probably familiar with this first part of this story. And it tells us that God sent his son, Jesus, to be born of a virgin by the name of Mary, who was engaged to a carpenter, and his name was Joseph. The baby was born in a barn, it was visited by shepherds, and the wise man began a long, long journey that took years for them to end up from the east to bring this Jesus gifts. Angels were involved, very involved throughout this story. And a lot of us leave the baby Jesus in the manger until Easter rolls around, and then we take him out as a man and we put him on the cross. But there's so much more to this man's life than those two holidays. During that time in the middle from the manger to the cross, Jesus grew up. When he reached the age of about 30, he chose 12 men to be with him, as the Bible describes. And we usually refer to them as his disciples. And during that time with his disciples, he turned water into wine and he showed mercy to sexually promiscuous women. He healed the sick. He commanded a dead man to walk out of the grave and he showed kindness and honor to people that the rest of society considered the scum of society. He preached love and he offered peace. Many of the things that Jesus said while he was teaching would challenge the way that people viewed God and the way that they tried to please God. Many people of that time had reduced a relationship with God simply to a list of rules to live by and obey. God had given them a path, a path to connect with him, but some people had turned the path itself into the whole point. They replaced a relationship with God for a religion about God. Now, they may have been living right, 
but they were forgetting the why behind the what. And when we forget the why, we often find ourselves on slippery, slippery slopes and unstable ground. When Jesus taught, he would often use phrases like, you have heard it said. And then he would explain something and he would follow that up and say, but I tell you. And sometimes he would even say it like this, a new command I give you. And it's easy for us to take those things and for us to be tempted to, to associate Jesus with rules and, and to associate and equate Jesus with do's and don'ts and guidelines for staying in good standing with God. It's so tempting to do that. But what Jesus was teaching was not an updated list of regulations and rules. He wasn't inviting us into a set of rules to live by, but he was giving us a calling to live for. He was offering a new way of living. One of Jesus' most significant sermons was delivered on the side of a mountain and it was called the Sermon on the Mount. And we find the longest version of that in the Gospels in the book of Matthew. And and he ends that teaching time with this example. In Matthew, we find it in chapter 7, verse 24. At the end of that, he says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like, and he says, you'll like this if you do these things, a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and they beat against that house. Yet, it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, he said, there's an example for us too who do that. He said, you're like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The same rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. And then it describes this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. And here's what he was saying. At the end of this great big teaching, Jesus says this, these two men built a house. He says one on sand and it was probably easier and it was quicker and it was cheaper, but there was no stability. And the other man, he built one on solid ground, which meant he had to drill into the rock. And he had to do that when he did not have an electric drill. He had to drill into the rock. So that means, so he could anchor the house to the foundation of that rock. And it likely took more time and it took more energy and it took more resources. But when the storms came and they would come, Jesus said, it stood. Jesus taught for three chapters and then he ended that teaching with this point, and this was the point. He's saying, do what I say, and your foundation will be good. Don't do what I say, and you will be foolish. He's saying one path, one choice, one path is firm and solid, but the other path is shifting and it is shaky. And so my question for you this morning and my question for me, what are you building your life upon?
See, all of us are building it on something. We're, we're building it on a philosophy of life or we're building it on a relationship or a dream or uh, 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 on a hopeful growing bank account. What are you anchored to what, in your life? What drives you? What, what are you counting on in your life to never fail you? The people Jesus taught that day, they were mostly building their lives on a religion. They were building it on a list of rules to follow. They were trusting their ability to stay in good standing with God by following a list of rules. And those rules were built upon years and years of tradition and years of family values and years of their identity as being Israelites, the people of God. But Jesus was offering them a new foundation. A, a, a new way to live. And in a sense, in a sense, Jesus was offering himself as the foundation. We can build on Jesus. Not just because his teachings are true, but because he himself is the truth. Jesus is truth with skin. He identified himself in the New Testament as the way, the truth, and the life. What made Jesus so special? That is a good question. I mean, clearly his birth was miraculous and it was exciting. But what makes the teaching of Jesus so perfect? Let me hit the pause button for just a moment. And we're going to talk about a little theology this morning. And I know for some of you that might sound super exciting. And some of you, you might be saying, this is super boring. I don't want this theology stuff. But just hang in here with me for a moment. Because I want you to discover that Jesus is unique, one of a kind. And it is that uniqueness of Jesus that is the cause for us to worship him, and the cause for us to make him the model for our lives. Here it is. Jesus is fully God, and Jesus is fully man. Therefore, he could represent, fully represent God to us. And then he could fully represent us to God. Fully confusing yet? It is, most definitely. But consider this, what we know. We know that Jesus was a man, a physical, real man. He wasn't a superman, not a superhero. Jesus was a physical man. We know this because he was born. He had a physical body with physical limitations. When Jesus worked hard, and too hard, he was tired and exhausted. When Jesus stubbed his toe, it hurt. If he hit it hard enough, it would bleed. Jesus had a physical body with physical limitations. We know that he was a man, a physical man, because he expressed human emotions. We know he was a physical person because he grew physically, the Bible says. He grew emotionally and he grew relationally. Because he was fully 100% man, 
he was able to fully represent us and to mediate for us before God the Father. He was able to serve as an example to us because he was a man, fully a man. He was able to identify with us and our hurts because he was a man. Listen to how Hebrews describes this in chapter 4. It tells us this. For we do not have a high priest. Now, this is talking about Jesus kind of in Israelite terms here, Hebrew terms. We do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. He says, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He was fully, completely human like us, with one exception, he did not sin sin. So at the same time that Jesus was fully man, he was also completely 100% fully God. How do we know this? His birth was supernatural as we just described. We know this. Jesus claimed to be God. We know this. In the Bible, God declares Jesus to be God. We know that in the Bible, we're told that the demons declared Jesus to be God. And Jesus displayed attributes that only a God could have, such as forgiving people for their sin. Only a God can do that. Because Jesus was fully, completely God, he was able to represent God the Father to us. When we saw Jesus... When we see Jesus described, we are seeing God. And to show us what God was like, he rescued us, redeemed us, restored us to a right relationship with God. Now, how do we reconcile these two seemingly contradictory statements that Jesus is fully God and at the same time fully man. Because how can you be 100% of one thing and 100% of another? Nobody's 200%. We only have 100% to work with. How can that be? Well, it's a theological paradox. It's one of those things that makes Jesus unique from the rest of his creation. And the reason why he has a unique place in our history, it's also the reason why he and he alone is deserving of our worship and deserving of being followed. Building on Jesus, building your life on Jesus means that we follow his character and we follow his ways and we follow his mission. It means that we take our lives and we tie them, we bind them to these three attributes of Jesus. We bind our life to his character, our life to his ways, our life to his mission. And then if we do that, we can be certain that we are building our lives on solid ground. When we build our lives on his character and his ways and his mission... We're on solid ground. But if we make a choice instead to say, well, I'm going to build my life on the character of the world around me. Or I'm going to build my life on the way the world says to do things because it looks quicker, God. I think I can get to my end result 
faster if I build my life on the world's ways and the world's missions. And it's, it's a choice. We can do that. But we will most certainly find our lives, our house on shifting sand. But if we build our lives instead on the unchanging, eternal nature of Jesus, then our house will be on a solid rock. So what is the character of Jesus? If we should tie and bind our lives to that, what is that? Well, his character is the sum total, all the total of his attributes. When you read the stories of Jesus in the Bible, I would encourage you to make notes. Any time as you're reading about Jesus or in the New Testament, make notes at any mention of the character of Jesus or how Jesus is described, what Jesus is like. Make a note of that. For example, if you look in the book of Matthew, he's described as Messiah. He's described as God with us, the Son of God, the rewarder, the provider, the healer, the teacher, the forgiver of sins. He's described as gentle and humble. He's described as compassionate. I like this one. He's described as the multiplier of food. Yes. He's described as the shepherd and the creator and the servant, the judge. He's described as being present. Ultimately, Jesus gives us a picture of what God the Father is like when we look at Jesus. Now, some of those characteristics, even some of the ones I just read, they are unique to Jesus because Jesus is fully God. We can never hope to be the Messiah. We can never hope to be the Son of God. That's who Jesus is because he's God. But there's other attributes that we can emulate, that we can put into our lives, like humility. The, the, the characteristic of Jesus of being compassionate and serving and forgiving and gentle. We can take those kinds of things, the character of Jesus, and bind our lives to those things with confidence. And when we do, we're confident that we are becoming more like Jesus and therefore living our lives more like we were created to live. That's the character of Jesus. But we can also bind our ways our, to, to bind our lives to the ways of Jesus. He shows us the way. He shows us the path that God desires us to take in all the matters of our lives. For instance, we can look at the New Testament and find what are the ways that Jesus related to other people? How, what are the ways that, that Jesus was engaged in prayer? Or what were the ways that Jesus managed his time? What, what is God's way of responding to criticism and responding to praise at the same time? The ways of God, that's what the entire Sermon on the Mount is all about. He teaches us how to respond to enemies, how to remain pure in our hearts and our minds, how to pray, how to give to the poor, how to prioritize the eternal goal over just temporary things here on earth. And he goes on and on and on talking about his ways. 
we could probably spend our entire lives just trying to unpack and understand and practice the principles that are found in the Sermon on the Mount. But we can bind our lives with the ways of Jesus. We can also bind our lives, finally, by building our lives on being on mission with him. It means being about what Jesus was about. It means doing the things that Jesus did in the way that he did them. It's, it's not enough just for us to listen to his teachings. It's not enough for, for us to learn his teachings or memorize his teachings, study his teachings. We have to put them into practice. Otherwise, if we're just listening and just studying, then he says, you are like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. So perhaps, perhaps we need less Bible study and more Bible doing. And this may sound crazy, but even Jesus himself is described as walking in obedience to the Father. Maybe it seems weird to think about the idea that that Jesus, who is God, was obedient. But the book of Hebrews describes it. It says, even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience. Jesus said, He only did what he saw his father in heaven doing. For us, replicating the character of Jesus, the ways of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus in our lives, it all begins with this. It begins with our personal priorities. Sometimes we get this image or thought that following Jesus means that we we take our list of priorities and we place Jesus at the top of those priorities so that Jesus is our main priority. So we have this this list of important priorities and Jesus goes to the top. But I don't think that's really what Jesus is talking about. I, I don't think it's putting Jesus' name at the top of our list in an order of priorities. I think it's making Jesus central to every single priority that is on our list. It is putting Jesus in the middle of that priority and the middle of that priority and Jesus in the middle of that one. Not necessarily that he wants his name at the top of the list. He wants his name inside in the center of every single priority of your life. He wants to be an integral part of all of those priorities. He wants to be the foundation and the filter through which every decision is made in your life. And that is building on a firm foundation. When we allow our ever-changing circumstances and our emotions or our opinions to be the foundation and the filter of what we determine in our priorities in life, 
then we are building our lives on that shifting sand. If we allow, on the other hand, Jesus to be that foundation and that filter for determining our life's focus, our day's focus, our focus for that moment right there, this moment that we have right now, moment after moment after moment, then we can be confident that we are building our lives on the firm foundation of the solid rock of Christ. Storms will come. We still live in a world that is broken by the fall of Eden. Our lives today, even when we are following Jesus, are still filled with divorce and cancer and financial problems and sickness and lost jobs and critical decisions we have to make every day and problems at home, problems with our children, problems in relationships. We cannot keep those storms from crashing into our lives but we can ensure that we are on a firm foundation so when the storms arrive, and they will arrive, Jesus guarantees we are all building our lives on something. What are you building your life upon? What are you building your career upon? What are you building your marriage on, your relationships on, your family on? Where are you placing your hope and where are you placing your trust? And what are you building your dreams of your future upon? Anything other than Jesus will shift with the winds of culture and opinion and time Because these things constantly change and shift. But when we build our lives on Jesus, we are certain that it is a solid foundation. And listen, my friends, it doesn't mean that everything in your life, if you're following Jesus, is going to be okay. It's not. Jesus promises there will be storms and trouble and hurt and pain. But it means this. You will still get whipped in the face by the winds of life. And the storms will beat upon us and beat us down. But when we build our lives on Jesus, we know we can remain firm. Secure in his promise that he is certain to keep us. What? Are you building your life upon? What foundation have you chosen? Not what foundation have you talked about? Not what foundation do you think is good? Not what foundation have you made Facebook posts about? But what foundation are you actually building upon? I pray that you will answer that question this week. Let's pray. God, at the end of the Old Testament, the people waited. 400 years they waited, wondering if you had closed the book on your story. 
But you were simply waiting for the right time, Father. The time that you would put on the flesh and blood of your creation and you would walk among us. Fully God and fully man. Our minds cannot comprehend that, Father. But you came. And you did not come to bring a better list of rules or a better religion, but you brought with you a relationship with God, and it is offered to all who will surrender to you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for breaking your silence at just the right time. Thank you for offering yourself as the foundation upon which we can build our lives instead of simply following what our culture says is acceptable and okay. Jesus, many of us right now at this very moment are saying to you, we choose you, Jesus. We want you. Help us to recognize upon what we are building our lives this week. And Jesus, give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we have heard. And Jesus, give us the courage to do it. It is in your name that we ask these things, Jesus. Amen.